The following is a paid presentation. The views expressed do not necessarily represent those of the staff and management of Shiawassee Radio. When does the mind really mature? You know, when do we really see that somebody should be deemed an adult defendant as opposed to a juvenile defendant? This is your cell. This is your bunk. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio, live from the Cofield Oil and Propane Studios. Here's attorney Bill Amadeo. All right, we are live. Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. It is Saturday, and we are on the second episode of The Jail Visit. And we have topics today. Um, These are topics that have come across my normal week. These are things people have been asking about. So today we're going to talk about juvenile defendants. With a juvenile defendant, we're going to talk about how the court system views them differently and how different counties go about prosecuting juveniles. We'll also discuss the Raising the Age Plan, which is new legislation, which could expand the scope of Haida, but hold that thought. Topic two, protesters versus pretenders. Well, a lot of protest about criminal litigation but there's also a lot of false, a lot of falsity in these protests. Today we're going to talk about what actions really are valid protest, and when people just want to go for a social event as opposed to really caring about the issue. Topic three will be race and prosecution, and we will discuss how the color of one's skin can dictate the level of prosecution one faces. And lastly, we're going to talk about defending a drinking and driving offense. And I will give personal stories behind each one of these topics today. Okay, juvenile defendants. Let's talk about how this plays out. When a juvenile is charged with a crime, our court system usually takes a different approach. Depending on the allegation we're faced with in the juvenile system, restoration, rehabilitation, that's really where we lean towards juvenile offenders. And the problem with juvenile defense is some counties will want to charge juveniles as an adult. Um, There was a case I was involved in not about, I guess, two years ago where somebody who was a minor was charged with murdering their parent and this 13 year old was going to be charged as an adult on a murder one and the case ended up disappearing long story there i won't get into details but you know when we have a youthful offender a couple things we got to keep in mind number one a alleged victim can lie against a juvenile like, just like they can against an adult. A lot of times we see cases where the juvenile defendant slash offender is deemed to be guilty just because somebody said it. And then we see how adult prosecutions graduate to that. We got to remember with the juvenile system, um, it depends on what county you're in, but there's level one probation, level two probation, there's diversion programs. As a whole across Michigan, we want to give juveniles the benefit of the doubt. Um, That doesn't always work with an overzealous prosecutor. 
I've had prosecutors tell me they want to put a 13-year-old kid at the Michigan Department of Corrections. Now, can you imagine what a 13-year-old child, what would happen to that child inside prison? You send that kid to MDOC, I don't think you're going to get rehabilitation. In fact, I imagine the kid's life's going to be altered forever. And I seem to feel, and this is just my opinion, and I'll give a personal story behind it, with juvenile offenders, they may go in with a bachelor's degree in crime. They come out with a master's degree in criminal aspects. You know, what happens with these kids when they go inside even the probationary setting when they're taken away from their families, it's not a healthy situation. If you ever go to Lincoln Hall in Detroit, you'll see a very unique system going on in Wayne County. And one of the reasons why I was such a supporter of Nick Hathaway, referee Hathaway, to go to the Frank Murphy Hall of Justice of Circuit Court judges because I never saw somebody who was in touch with helping juveniles turn their life around. When Nick Hathaway runs again, we should all get behind him. Um, that's a man who just gets it. The whole Hathaway family gets it. They understand when punishment needs to be punished. They understand when rehabilitation needs to be in place. And when you're dealing with a juvenile defendant, you are dealing with something that is fragile. You know, you're not, it's bad enough when a 30-year-old guy or a 25-year-old guy is falsely accused of something or facing life in prison. When we have a minor, the game just changes dramatically. Everything gets magnified. So with the juvenile system right now, we have height in place. And that's, if you're between the ages of 17 up till your 24th birthday, you can qualify for HIDA. HIDA is the Home Youthful Training Act. And with HIDA, it gives the juvenile a chance to keep something off the record and not affect their future. And remember, sometimes with HIDA, there's a jail component with it. Sometimes we have HIDA prison which means the youthful offender would have to do two years in the Upper Peninsula. And sometimes that's something that could turn a kid's life around. But when we have a young defendant, the court system really should be more sympathetic. Um, so it's I'm branching out a little bit here, not just talking about the juvenile defendant, but the young defendant. The raising the age plan, which is something that Prosecutor Lacido was pretty big behind, in Macomb when he was dealing with legislation, the raising the age plan was going to expand Haida from 23 to 25. And one of the reasons for that is there's been a lot of psychological studies on adolescents. You know, when does the mind really mature? You know, when do we really see that somebody should be deemed an adult defendant as opposed to a juvenile defendant? You know, in New Jersey, and here's where the personal stories come in. In Jersey, there was something called Harbor Fields. And Harbor Fields, that was juvie. And I never saw somebody go into Harbor Fields and come out a more stable juvenile. In fact, I remember being victimized from people coming out of Harbor Fields. 
And it was funny because there were kids I grew up with that went into the system and they came out and they became true predators. It's almost like they went in for theft crimes and they came out committing sexual assaults. Well, sadly, that's learned behavior right there. Um, Many times those charged with CSCs were victimized themselves. And I think, and nothing against Harbor Fields, but that was a rough place. GINS was another program, Juveniles in Needs of Services in Jersey in the 90s. And that was some horrible stuff. I remember hearing stories from kids that went in the GINS where they didn't have enough food. They had to get money for food. There was all sorts of trade currency going on. Just a difficult situation. And I always found with the juveniles that went in, you know, the opportunity for education and stuff was not there. You know, it was a setback. And a lot of times, I mean, especially in the inner city of New Jersey, some of the kids committing crimes were taught that. You know, they were taught that from family members, unfortunately. If you have three generations of felons in your family, there's a great chance that the fourth generation will graduate to a felon or a heightened felon. There's a discrepancy between those with money and those with not. And as somebody who grew up without money, who became somebody with money, unless you're blind, you can see the difference. I'm going to tell a story back my freshman year of high school. There was a kid from Margate, and he was an asshole, okay? His family had a lot of money, and in South Jersey, Margate, if you lived in Margate, the odds were you had some cash. And he was like a wannabe punk. He hot-wired a car, stole it, got into a car wreck, hurt somebody seriously. I mean, he really messed somebody up. He was drunk and he was high. So we have an auto theft. We have alcohol and drugs playing a system. We have a victim who was maimed. And this individual, his family had a lot of money. And they had a good lawyer. A lawyer who I actually looked up to in Jersey, who I still respect as a defense counsel. And the punishment for this young man, for what he did was he had to write a 250-word essay on why you should not steal vehicles and drink under the age. Now, in Atlantic City, kid I used to box with, young black man, got caught stealing from the local grocery store. And he got three months in juvenile detention for stealing like $40 worth of groceries. What he did was he took the cart up to the cashier, this was before the cell cashiers, and he ran through. And a couple security guys tackled him in the parking lot. They say he resisted. So they added a resisting charge on there, and he ended up doing three months. And um, when he came out, He just wasn't the same person. You know, I remember freshman year at AC High, I was in the locker room with him once. We had gym class together. And he had a 
really nice black jacket that he loved. And somebody went into the locker and said, Ooh, I just found a really nice black jacket. And he came out looking for his jacket, saying, Did you guys see a black jacket? Now, four of us had saw the other individual steal. But in this setting, you didn't rat on anybody. You just couldn't. And the look on his face when he had that jacket stolen, it was heartbreak. And that day changed everything for him. You know, and before that, I don't think he would have been stealing $40 in groceries from the local grocery store in the heart of Atlantic City. He didn't give a f after that. It was more of a psychological issue. Now, somebody was smart to say, hey, let's get him therapy. He could have discussed this, but he became bitter. He became angry. And then when I saw the two sentences between the Margate kid and the Atlantic City kid, one kid committed serious felonies, 250-word essay. The other kid who lived in the war zone, whose family didn't have money, did three months. His schooling was altered. He was compromised. And um, just really sad situation. I really feel what juveniles, it is, it should be a team effort between prosecutors and defense lawyers and magistrates and referees and probation officers to work as a team. Because what you want to do, and one of the reasons I do a lot of juvenile work, is I don't want a juvenile defendant to be paying me five years from now. I want them to be doing something good with their life. You know, you have a chance to play a role in that young individual's life. And it should not be a chance to bump up your conviction rate. It should be a chance to turn things around. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Since Scott Grable kind of insisted that I do every term at Cooley instead of lump them in the one, that's why we're doing it term by term. And today, Scott Grable and I had a discussion about how, when I was a kid, I actually applied for a bartending job at his father's bar. And I was bartending at Tropicana full-time, and I applied for a part-time job at Grable's. And for those of you who don't know, Grable's Atlantic City is like an Atlantic City establishment. Like, Grable's was a historic bar. And Scott's brother, Mark, turned me down said I had lack of experience. And great Scott Grable said today, if he had known that Mark Grable turned me down from the bartending job, he would have hired me at his firm. So glad we slipped through the human resource department there. Anyway, third term at Cooley. We are off academic probation. And one of the requirements of being on academic probation was you had to attend these ARC seminars. And ARC is the Academic Resource Center, not to be confused with the other ARC. The ARC had these seminars that were mandated. Well, now, I was off AP, but I kept going to these seminars. And Dr. Wilson would be sitting there, and she'd be like, oh, so I see you're still on academic probation. I said, no, I'm just attending these voluntarily. 
and the confusion on the face that you would do extra work when it wasn't required was very bizarre. But I was attending all these extra seminars. I looked at it like it was free tutoring. That term, I had three classes. I had research and writing with Eileen Cavanaugh. I had civil procedure one with Al Lynch, who was a former judge. And I had crim pro with James Peden. Research and writing was kind of a useless class in my opinion. No problem with Professor Cavanaugh, but you know, they used to like make you run in circles. And no matter what you did with your writing, it didn't seem to be good enough. I ended up doing fine in the course, but it was a bizarre, like, chasing your tail mentality. And I remember all the ones, all the students that really killed it in research and writing and were the great writers didn't really do much in the real world. But that course was kind of bizarre. It could totally... You were basically assured of a decent grade if you fulfilled all the requirements, but to say you learned something just really wasn't there. So, I mean, it happened. Research and writing was just, like, messing with your mind a little bit. Cipro 1. Al Lynch. What an amazing guy. Professor Lynch was a, I guess he was a retired judge at that point. And this man, he spoon-fed you the rules of civil procedure. It's one of the few classes at Cooley where I can actually say it was practical. And obviously I'm not a civil litigator today, but the things we learned in CivPro while with Professor Lynch, the guy really cared. He had office hours every week, which was like free tutoring. I used to go to my class on Thursday afternoon, then attend a second class on Monday afternoon. And hearing that information a second time, I mean, memory was big in his course. And the guy truly wanted his students to succeed. I can't say that about every professor at Coy, but I will tell you, Al Lynch was a great guy. Hope he's doing well. Truly a good man, a great professor. He wanted you to learn. And some of my fondest memories of Cooley are in Professor Lynch's class. And then we had James Peden for Creme Pro. What I could say here is that all the anger I had or have or whatever towards Norman Fell, what a polar opposite. James Peden was a guy who just got it. He taught you criminal procedure like somebody who wanted you to be a great criminal lawyer. He broke down the course, the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth and Sixth combined, but the things he taught you on the Fourth Amendment, he had such a passion for the topic. The warrant requirements, the warrant exceptions, there were so many things that Professor Peden broke down in such detail. He gave such practical experience. It was an honor to be in his class. And like Professor Lynch, I used to go to classes twice a week. So explain something here. To explain something, I should say. You had a three-hour class once a week. That's what you were required to do at Cooley. What I used to do 
is go to my required class, and then I would find out when my professor was teaching another class, and if I was allowed to, I would sit in there an extra three hours. And I know certain people had a problem with that, but it was like learning the stuff two times. And that would be like a mechanism for later in my career. Like if I listened to it more than my competition, if I studied it, if I practiced it more, you know, you get good. My uncle used to say, if you take an asshole and put a pool stick in his hand eight hours a day, he'll become a good pool player. So now if you wanted to actually learn Crim Pro and Civil Procedure, let's do it twice. Let's break it apart. And it was third term of law school was a pretty fascinating term. And other people, there were other Crim Pro professors that in my mind couldn't hold a candle to James Peden. And I will get into a special Peden story later, but Remember, like, other people I know had Professor Beery. I never really cared for Professor Beery, because he used to do this thing where he wouldn't actually teach, like, in a traditional manner. You had to cite a case to do your essay questions. And Beery, you know, I remember years later, Beery and I had become Facebook friends. And I explained to him there was some drama going on at Cooley, and he said, you're deleted and blocked. Like... The guy had a really big ego. I know he's a tenured professor there, but I will tell you, the fact that Brandon Beery is a tenured professor and James Peden is no longer employed, you could see why there's certain problems at Cooley. Because Peden, Peden not only cared, he dug deep. And I'm going to give you an example. I was at his office hours one day. There was free tutoring going on. He had me reading something, and my grades went way up my second term, mainly because I was able to type my essays. And Peden realized I had a form of dyslexia. He experienced it before, what I actually had was dysgraphia. And dysgraphia is like a form of dyslexia where my handwriting, and everybody knows how bad my handwriting is, but you would see words in reverse, and when you would handwrite it, it would come out in reverse. So it made things really difficult. And James Peden told me of these tests that were out there, these exercises. So I would do these things with my eyes and these brain teasers, and it would help compromise, combat the problem I had with dyslexia. And I will simply say that if it wasn't for James Peden, I know I wouldn't be here today. Um, what a major asset to the criminal law community. He worked with my firm briefly for a while, about a year or two ago. And I mean, I think the drive was a little much for him. He's an older gentleman now, but I will, and I would gladly give Professor Peden work. If anybody's looking for a legal writer or somebody just to pick their brain, it doesn't get better than James Peden. Jim Peden is what criminal law is supposed to be. He's someone that saw a problem I had and addressed it. Took the time to do so when he wasn't required to do so. And he was truly an inspiration. And long after I was out of his class and I was sitting for my first bar exam, 
Like, I would email him, and he would just fire back emails. You got this. You know, there was so much negativity at that place. You, know, you had the Norman Fells that told you weren't going to make it. But Patricia Wilsons, who, you know, weren't lawyers but would brag about their lawyerly abilities. I mean, people that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, in my opinion, weren't worth the dirt on your shoes. But then you had somebody like a Jim Peden, somebody like an Al Lynch, like third term really kind of restored your hope in the legal profession. This guy saw that I was having issues reading. He saw I was seeing the words in reverse, but he also saw how hard I was working. And he said to me one day, when I'm hiring, I'm not looking for the students that just get A's. Look for that B and B minus student, the ones that got to work their ass off, because they're the ones that are going to win those trials. And, you know, my grades went way up. Academics weren't really going to be much of an issue anymore once I started typing and then once I saw that dysgraphia was under control. But at that point, you know, it was still kind of a touch-and-go situation. And having Jim Peden and Al Lynch my third term was such a huge huge edge to me you know it was like this sense of encouragement that you couldn't pay for was priceless as far as friendships and dating Cooley was interesting I was recently talking to someone who I dated and her career has not taken off the way she wanted to take off very smart individual but there was some intoxication there and she was in some courses my second term with me and she was just laying out some text messages we'd be real clear with everyone I work my ass off every day I dedicate my life to criminal it's the one thing I'm good at it's the one thing I embrace with the law. I hold discovery the way a strong Christian looks at the Bible. The way an ex-football player just holds that pigskin in their hands. Okay, criminal law is really important to me. It's special to me. And when you work 60, 70, 80 hours a week, you know, I think reliving the story it's more therapeutic for me it's not meant to put anybody down do i like norman fell no do i like patricia wilson absolutely not do i love james peden absolutely mark dots and al lynch some great people but i'm not taking shots at individuals i went to school with i mean the reality is this when i went to law school I was going to be a big-time civil litigator in New Jersey. And I guess that statement in and of itself will show you how clueless I was. That was the plan. I wasn't going to do criminal law. I was going to do civil litigation with Tim McElwain and be a big star in New Jersey. Let me tell you, the last time I visited New Jersey, I felt like it was prison. I had to leave Jersey. It just wasn't me. Everybody's got their own story. For those who have not had great careers at Cooley, here's my after Cooley. I would just tell you, keep fighting. 
for those that are not happy with life. Life is too short, man. You know, to the individuals that have sent angry texts about these blogs, they're not meant to shoot anybody. This is my story. I'm simply telling you my version of events. You can agree with them. You can disagree with them. I think, you know, if you know me, I'm not really going to hold back what I feel is the appropriate thing to say. But again, just like I couldn't tell you how to tell your story, sure as I'm not going to tell me how to tell mine. And my story had a lot of bobs and weaves. It's been a chaotic roller coaster ride. And I will look at my third term of law school as a launching pad. If I didn't have Jim Peden and Al Lynch my third term, I might have a very different view on my time at law school. I will tell you, fourth term was not quite what third term was. But third term was special. Not a lot of anger in third term. If you want anger, tune in for fourth term. There'll be some anger coming. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. This summer was pretty unique with the amount of energy we had with protest. And there were certainly protests on the Grady L matter. There were protests across Michigan over George Floyd, even though it wasn't a Michigan case. Um, There's a lot of corruption in the legal system. No matter where you stand, the protest really had the ability to bring a lot of people together. And also had the ability to tear a lot of people apart. And I know as somebody who was part of those protests, um, I know why I was there. You know, I saw what I believed was injustice, and I thought it was racial injustice. And it was really odd how some of the people you met during those protests um, really stopped caring about the issue shortly after the fact. You know, you don't really need a news crew around if you care about an issue. But many people only protest when the camera's on or only make an issue for something when they believe somebody's watching. That's bullshit. Either you care about the issues or you don't. And what we saw was as time moves forward, people seem to care less when the allegations were fresh it was something people wanted to be a part of when the allegations were not fresh it was something nobody seemed to care about anymore and you know it was just one of those situations where it was new to me but i remember as a youth protesting I remember as a youth being at abortion protests with the Catholic Church and being a strong altar boy and stuff. And I I never really enjoyed protests. It was something like we had to do. It was embedded in our culture in New Jersey. 
and as I start talking to people, right, writing my own memoirs and thinking about things, I question how many people truly care about the issues and how many people truly view it as a social event. If you only want to come to a protest for a social event, you should probably stay home. If you really care about the issues, it doesn't matter if the camera's rolling or not. And I think it's sad during a lot of protests that some people are just getting their 15 minutes of fame. The protest I've been involved with meant a lot to me. And you learn that protests become highly political um, when you fall out of favor with somebody politically or you don't want to share their political views anymore the issue kind of gets washed away the end of the day if we really have an issue we care about money, fame, publicity should not play a role in it so for those that truly protest for issues they believe in I commend you. I applaud you. For those that just showed up for their own personal Facebook time, it's a lot of good psychiatric programs in the state of Michigan. You should explore them. Race and prosecution. Okay. Well, if anybody feels that Lady Justice is truly blind, it's not true. Let's be real about things. It really is odd that in Washtenaw County, for example, 12% of our community are minority, but I believe it was 81% of the prosecutions were against black defendants. Now, I do think the current administration is taking great strides to try to alleviate this disparity, but, I mean, it's a huge disparity. The reality is, if you are a black man or a black woman, you have a greater chance of being prosecuted than not. But what's also funny about this, people always scream about us, but let's really break it down. Because we hear about restorative justice, but it seems to be we pause restorative justice when there's a CSC allegation. Well, let's be clear about CSC allegations. If somebody was raped, the defendant should really pay a price. But if somebody lied about being raped, that defendant should be able to sue that individual because they never get their life back. And when you have a minority who is being falsely accused of rape, you, my friend, are getting the worst of all worlds. You know, it is so funny how the media will address a young minority individual who's being charged with rape as opposed to a white kid who's being charged with rape. Had a situation not too long ago. I won't mention the county it's in. <clears throat> However, the reporter contacted me and I have a defendant in this particular county who's a minority who's being accused of a CSC. And by the way, I have 272 active cases. So before anybody wants to go yell there's a grievance here, I'm not mentioning names or counties. 
you can figure it out on your own. When these young minorities are up, it's a media blitz. However, when a white kid in the same venue is being charged, we don't always see the same type of media. And I thought it was really funny. This one reporter contacted me and said to me, hey, I didn't know about that white kid being charged. And they said in a text message, which I have, the prosecutor never told us about that particular defendant being charged. So let me get this straight. Is the prosecutor bringing the media in to my minority defendants? That's interesting. Is the reporter lying to me? Or was the prosecutor playing some shady things? We're always told as defense lawyers, we can't draw attention to the case. We cannot discuss specifics of the case, which is fine. I'm not going to do that. However, if we have a prosecuting team that is giving tips to the media in order to potentially taint a jury pool, that's a concern, don't you think? Now, it's a lot of prosecutors I have a great deal of respect for. But if that is going on, and minority defendants who already are behind the eight ball, in my opinion, are having to deal with unneeded publicity to compromise their chances to prove their innocence. And let's not bullshit each other, okay? A defendant has to prove their innocence. It's bullshit when we say you're innocent till proven guilty. Any good defense lawyer will tell you we have to put the fucking offense in defense, okay? A defendant is deemed guilty when they walk through the fucking door. And if you don't believe that, study criminal prosecutions. So when you're fighting for a defendant, and the media has already convicted the defendant, it makes your job two times as hard. And Michelle Fisher, you are 110% right. You are guilty until proven innocent, and nobody should be falsely accused of a crime. What I think we should do is if somebody accuses someone of a crime, why not give them a polygraph? It's illegal to do so right now. If alleged victims were truly victimized, they should have no problem taking a polygraph. I will tell you where the legislation is right now. I know a few prosecutors I deal with. I got people that pass polygraphs and nobody seems to care. And it's usually more difficult when I have a minority client. Because the reality is, if I can pass a polygraph and there's no physical evidence and the prosecutor still doesn't care, what the f*** just happened here? Race plays a role in prosecution. Don't let anybody tell you it doesn't. The Jail Visit with attorney Bill Amadeo from McManus and Amadeo. Connect with McManus and Amadeo at McManusAmadeo.com or call 800-392-7311. This is The Jail Visit on Shiawassee Radio. Defending a drinking and driving offense. This is a topic I hear about all the time. People come up to me and they say how do you defend a drinking and driving offense and i know there's some good lawyers out there who solely do drinking and driving offenses let's talk about this number one 
if you are an immigrant, you're not an American citizen, you got to be really careful here. Because even getting a reduction down to an impaired driving could lead to deportation. You know, it is tough. If you're like in Bloomfield, I wouldn't drink in Bloomfield. I'm not a drinker, but I'd stay the hell out of Bloomfield. There's a new presumption that you shouldn't get jail time on your first offense. Well, you know, not every judge is going to follow that. What you want to do when you're defending a drinking and driving offense is number one, obviously you stand mute, wave a formal reading. But you want to buy as much time between the arraignment and that pretrial as you can. I like to be really aggressive when I'm defending a drinking and driving case. Because most drinking and driving cases, you know, there's a lot of obstacles you have to overcome. One thing you can do at the jump is build the defendant's character. You want to get an alcohol assessment done. Somebody like a Greg Hills is a great assessor. But you want to get that assessment done to basically show the court that you are more than this offense. Number two, you want to go to AA or potentially NA, depending upon what the offense is. With AA, you have to get um, signatures. And during the Zoom era of Alcoholics Anonymous, what you want to do is basically log and screenshot every AA meeting you go to. Because what your defense lawyer wants to do, guys, is build a package. A package to say, yeah, but. It's like a sentencing memo on steroids, okay? You want to get pay stubs. And most importantly, you want to build a biography for your client. Are they married? Are they supporting their children? How long have they been employed? Have they been a resident of the county for X amount of time? To just walk in (laughs) to the prosecution and say, hey, give me a reduction, that's not enough. You want to take this at the jump. Now, obviously, different candidates are going to view this differently. The way you defend a OUIL in Wayne County is going to be different than Washtenaw County and so on and so forth. But, as a general rule, what you want to do, number one, get the assessment done. Number two, get them to Alcoholics Anonymous. Number three, get their pay stubs. Number four, get a biography. That is really the way you want to defend it. And I will tell you, I have some relatives that have had alcohol problems. And getting someone help for alcohol abuse is, it's not easy. I mean, it's a true addiction. And sadly, alcohol abuse can lead to a lot of other problems. So when you're trying to get a loved one into those programs, number one, if they don't want to be in the program, you're pissed in the wind. They really have to want to embrace their sobriety. Um, In Washtenaw County, going to someone like a Matt Statman is a good thing. You know, the assessment is the first step. But it's not just the assessment. I mean, ideally, you don't want to come back for a second OUIL. And a third, the penalties become more severe. The jobs of the lawyer becomes more difficult. So there's a lot of things that need to get done. I went through a checklist. That's your game plan. We have 
Some questions. I have a plea in Circuit Court in Shiawassee. I'm going to plea for Circuit Court in Shiawassee. What are the chances of a no contest plea versus guilty plea, and what will I have to put in my factual basis? Okay. Well, this is certainly something you should talk about with your lawyer, and will ever want to trump your lawyer. But as you know, Shiawassee County, that's a pretty near and dear county to me, and I've been before Judge Stewart many times. Um, I don't know if Scott Corner on your case, and based on your email, I don't know who you are, so let me be clear. I'm not going to tell you what to do here, but I don't know if Scott's going to let you do a no contest. I know Judge Stewart is really not big on no contest, please. If you're going to do a plea, he wants you to take responsibility. And as far as your factual basis goes, without knowing the facts, I'm going to tell you when you're at that point, um, the judge is not really big on lawyers doing voir dire. You have to take accountability here. You have to stand up before Judge Stewart and just tell him, to the best of your knowledge, what you did. The time for defending and arguing your innocence would come before a plea, or if you're going to trial, obviously. But if you decide to plea, part of the process in that court is going to be to take accountability. If you are pleading guilty, we're going to presume you're guilty of something. If you do not do a proper factual basis, the judge may not accept the plea. Judge Stewart is really big on somebody taking ownership of a crime they may have committed. So I wouldn't him and haul about things. Um, it's something you should talk about with your lawyer, but don't count on a no contest plea coming in. I mean, there are circumstances where you may get it, but for the most part, if you're going to do a guilty plea in Shiawassee, you got to do it right. And if you don't do it right, you're only going to hurt yourself. So have a conversation with your attorney about that, but you can't really dance around the facts. The elements of the crime have to be proven. Venue's got to be established. And no contests are not a normal thing. Um, in Shiawassee. In Washington, it might be very different depending upon the situation. Quite often, a no contest plea can be accomplished easier in a Washington than a Shiawassee or easier in a Wayne County. But um, in a place like Shiawassee, accountability is a big thing. So if you're going to plead guilty, you got to take accountability. If you don't take accountability, you're not going to do yourself any favors. Number two. I have an OUIL3. What advice do you have for me? Okay, well, number one, I went over some things earlier, what you want to do with drinking and driving offenses. Um, an OUIL3 is a felony, and you'll basically be on the five-year grid. You won't do five years, but, I mean, it becomes serious after the third one. Um, I mean, arguably it's serious after the first one, but you get to the third one, you are deemed a felon. So, the assessment, Alcoholics Anonymous, and really community ties are big because you could be looking at prison time on it. Now, understand, a few things are going to come into play. What was your BAC? Um, what'd you blow? Did you refuse a blow? Because that creates another problem with implied consent. But, you know, what was your BAC? Was there an accident? Certain counties are more lenient if there's no accident involved. And if there was an accident, was it a one-person accident, or is there going to be civil litigation coming down the line? What you really want to do potentially on this is if you want to try the case, waiving a prelim might be the move here. 
a lot of times previewing the case may not be the move on an OUIL3. If you have a defendable issue, you might just want to wave it over to circuit, do some motions to try to suppress and prep for trial. If you're going to do a plea and your whole goal is about cushioning the blow, everything we talked about earlier gets magnified times 10. You know, in a place like Lapeer, you have to run the prelim or you have to play. That's kind of a new system they have there. And I don't know if it's like old crimes, but I know on OUIL3 is that comes into play. Um, there's a new thing out there where in Lapeer they're preserving testimony. And that is so different from like what a Washington would do in that situation. So you really, something like you've heard me talk about before, you have to know the language of the county you're in. If you don't know that language, you're going to do your client a service. Just because somebody could swipe a credit card does not mean necessarily you should take the case. How you handle a Lapeer case is different than a Shiawassee case, especially in a situation like this. Shiawassee is different than Wayne, Wayne's different than Jackson, and so on and so forth. So I would really need to know, number one, what county you were in, what you blew if you blew, and what's your criminal history. I mean, do you have three in the last seven, or is it three in the last 20? There's different things to talk about. If you have counsel, you want to really assist counsel and talk about your history. But what we talked about earlier, the assessment in AA, that's critical, so make sure you do that. Number three, if I have a medical marijuana card, can there be an OUIL in play? Okay. This is really a gray area because a lot of times if you're legally able to smoke marijuana, you know, how much THC is in you to affect your driving ability? I mean, the short answer is you shouldn't drive, you smoke pot. Okay. But we had a case um, about three years ago. And here's what happened in this case. And it gets really, it becomes a gray area. There was a car accident. And the individual allowed the cop to search his phone. And on the phone, they found some bad stuff, which hurt this guy. So this particular county charged him um, with a certain crime. We'll get into specifics right now. But, you know, we got him a great deal now after they charged him with that they then tried to charge him with an OUIL causing death saying that because he had THC in his system that caused the death in this horrible car accident and my argument was this and that got dismissed because you can't have your cake and eat it too there if the defendant in that case had enough competency to hand over his phone for a search, well, then he clearly was calm enough to drive with the THC in the system. Now, flip it. If he was not competent, because he was under the influence, well, then everything found that phone should be suppressed. You can't get two prosecutions out of that one, guys. And we see this happen a lot in the marijuana industry right now. You know, the way you test THC and such is not the same way you test alcohol. So, what I see happen a lot of times with uh, marijuana cases involving auto accidents and OUIL type cases is they get pled down to impaired. You know, you might say, well, that's not fair. The way the statute reads on impaired driving, you could be sleepy and they could hit you with an impaired. 
So, understand that. But uh, yeah, technically it can be an OUIL. Question four. Can you discuss the EMU cases? Like the fake email address on this. It's funny how every time I do a Facebook Live and I take questions, there's always like fake like undercover emails trying to set me up for things. I will say this about the EMU cases. I believe in the innocence of my clients. Good enough for you today? Okay. Glad we got that done. <laughs> Question five. How valuable is the polygraph? Well, depends on the county. I'm a huge believer in polygraphs. Because I like to know the truth for myself. When somebody says they're innocent, I always like to do, have them do a test. Now, you should have them do a private test first. And then do the police test. I'll call Andrew Longusky up and I'll say, hey, polygraph this individual. Some counties, some prosecutors will be, like, really moved by a past polygraph. Some will disregard it. On CSC cases, you now have a statutory right to have a polygraph. Don't forget that. Don't just go use that card because you don't have a right to a lawyer at the polygraph. And quite many times, you know, you go in for a three, four hour polygraph, it could be a fishing expedition for the police, and if you pass, doesn't move the prosecution, and if you fail and tell something, or get compromised something, wink wink, to somebody at Michigan State who may be watching right now, the Michigan State Police, one particular polygrapher I hate with a passion, who writes out confessions for people and doesn't answer emails about it. That's okay, bro. That case got dismissed, so don't to worry about it. With that being stated, be real careful. Police have a tough job, but when they bring you in for an interview, it's not to help you. And when you have a right to a lawyer at a polygraph and somebody wants to twist your words, things could really go... The domino effect could work against you, so be careful with that. I never would do a police poly before without doing a private poly. And you do the bright private poly. You do it with somebody who really knows what the hell they're doing. Because if you pass a private and you fail the police, you didn't do yourself any good. You want a tester like Longoski who's going to say, look, it's going to be a tough test. But I'd rather have it be a tough test because I want to be able to move to the next level. If I can't move to the next level, what's the point? Okay. That's going to be a wrap today. The proceeding was a paid presentation by McManus and Amadeo PLLC. Listeners of this program should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No listener should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information within this program without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Listening to this program using any associated website or related links or resources does not create an attorney-client relationship between the 
the listener and host, contributors, or contributing law firms. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this program are hereby expressly disclaimed. You and your loved ones deserve a criminal defense firm that believes that your life and freedom are worth fighting for. Matt McManus, Bill Amadeo, and the McManus and Amadeo team of attorneys, investigators, and case managers will take the lead with a vast knowledge and legal experience across the state of Michigan to get the best possible result for you. Learn more at McManusAmadeo.com. Schedule a free consultation 24-7 by calling 800-392-7311. Cofield Oil and Blight Propane are now Cofield Oil and Propane. Cofield Oil and Propane serves residential, agricultural, and commercial customers in Shiawassee and surrounding counties with quality gasoline, diesel fuel, and home heating oil products along with propane, which can be used for heating and cooking and so much more. Visit us at cofieldoil.com or call 989-634-5623. Cofield Oil and Propane. We'll bend over backwards to earn your business. Cofield Oil and Propane, since 1953.